I'm sure by now most of you are uh, familiar with the movie or the book, A River Runs Through It. A number of years ago, my son Brian, who teaches English in a high school over in Arlington, uh, Washington, sent me a copy of the book. It was before the book actually became a bestseller, and I uh, read through it and thoroughly enjoyed it. And then I saw the movie last week, and then went back and uh, reread the story, and uh, was again uh, fascinated by McLean's uh, account of his childhood, his uh, upbringing in the home of a Presbyterian minister over in uh, Billings, Montana. As you know, it's uh, the story is about fly fishing, and uh, more than that, it's about uh, it's about a family's effort to try to to help a young man who did not want to be helped, a family member who drank too much and lived too fast and finally ended his life in a tragic way in a back uh, alley brawl. But it's actually more than that. Uh, the, the movie didn't quite capture McLean's theme. theme. It, it comes through much more clearly in the book. It's really about the efforts of a father to try to pass on to his uh, his son's certain underlying principles, some certain basic principles of, uh, of life. And most of those stories, most of those principles were taught on uh, trout streams. If you saw the movie, you, you may remember the scene where Norman, who is the older brother, the author of, of the book, was seated next to his father on a trout stream. They were watching Paul, the younger brother, uh, fish. And the father had a leather book in his hand. Now, it's not clear from the movie, but it's very clear from the book that the, the book his father was reading was a Greek New Testament. As a, fact in, as a matter of fact, in the book, McLean leans over his father and looks at, at the page that he was reading, and he knew enough Greek to recognize the word logos, and he knew that he was reading from the uh, first chapter of John. He said, I guessed from it. And from the argument that I was looking at the first verse of John. Now, this is the way McLean explains the, uh, describes the conversation in his book. He says to his father, what have you been reading, I ask? A book, he said. So I would not have to bother to look over his knees to see it. He said, a good book. Then he told me, in the part I was reading, it says the word was in the beginning. And that's right. I used to think water was first, but if you listen carefully, you'll hear that the word is underneath the water. That's because you're a preacher first and then a fisherman, I told him. If you ask Paul, that was the younger brother, he will tell you that the words are formed out of the water. No, my father said, you're not listening carefully. The water flows over the word. Now, what McLean meant, uh, in fact, I'm not even sure that he understood what his father was getting at, but uh, what his father was trying to say is that uh, there is a timeless word. Uh, something existed before time that's, that's foundational. Now, we're, we're living in, a, in an age when all of the basic assumptions of Western civilization are up for grabs. No one seems to know anymore what, uh, what's right and what's wrong. We used to have uh, a sense of common decency. 
Newsweek pointed out a couple of weeks ago that we have come to a point in our history as a nation that common decency is no longer common. We don't share certain moral assumptions that we used to, uh, we used to hold in common. Ideas like integrity and, and valor, courage and civility and courtesy and, and honor for one another, and honor for our marriage vows and and uh, a sense of loyalty to our friends. Those ideas are all being, being questioned. And, and often the, the ideas that we have held as foundational uh, for years are, are jettisoned. No one seems to know any longer what's right and what's wrong. What are, what are the lasting values? Well, the, these are the things that we have to come back and, and, and look at. We, we have to think a bit about what really matters to us and, and what the basic fundamental principles of life are. And in order to do so, I want you to turn with me to a psalm. It's the 119th psalm. And I want you to look at just the last eight verses of this, uh, of this psalm. At uh, this poet's understanding of those underlying principles that give liberty and stability and substance and, and meaning uh, to life. Now, the 119th Psalm is all about the Word. It's the Word that's older than time. Every line, or there are 176 lines in this poem. It's the longest poem in, in the Psalter. Every line uh, in this poem says something about the Word of God. The, uh, the psalmist sorts through his vocabulary. As a matter of fact, he uses every word that I'm aware of in the Hebrew language for the word word. Precepts, uh, disciplines, uh, law, uh, sayings, promises, decrees, judgments. All the words that are normally used for the word of God are employed in, in, in this psalm. Now, uh, you may notice at the very beginning of this psalm, there's a funny little uh, symbol and the word tau out to the side. That's the equivalent of our letter Z in, in the English language. This is uh, what's known as an acrostic psalm. It's divided into 22 stanzas of eight lines each. The first eight lines, the first stanza, all begin with the first letter of the Hebrew, Hebrew alphabet, our A, their Aleph. The next eight lines begin with the Hebrew letter B, or Baith, and so forth through the, through, the, uh, through the alphabet. Now, there are 22 stanzas because uh, there are only 22 letters in, in the Hebrew alphabet. If you were writing in English, there'd be 20, 26 stanzas. Uh, I assume it was written this way because uh, it's easy to remember. It's a mnemonic device. I think this psalm was taught to children, and they could remember the first lines, and, and they, could, uh, they could follow along and, and recall what the psalmist had to say about, uh, about the word. It, it's a lengthy psalm, 176 verses, but it would, uh, it would, it would be well to, to memorize this psalm and to teach it to our children because it's all about the first things, the primary things, the things that, uh, uh, that really matter. Now, one of the striking things about this psalm is that over and over again, he says, I, I love the word. If you just turn one page back, verse 127, I love your commandments more than gold and silver. Verse 159, I love your precepts. Verse 165, great peace have they who love your law. 
verse three, 167. I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. Here's a man who, uh, who loved the word of God, had a deep affection for what God had, had to say to him. I read a couple of weeks ago uh, a story about Dr. Jean, uh, Sir James Berry's uh, mother. Uh, James Berry was an English uh, author. His mother was a, was a Christian, and uh, he, he recalls growing up in a home where every morning when he, when he walked through the kitchen, she would be sitting uh, at the kitchen table reading the Bible. I recall my mother doing the same thing. And uh, his mother had, had literally read the, page, the, the words right off the pages. Uh, an old, battered Bible. You could hardly discern uh, uh, the words uh, anymore. And, uh, uh, but his mother began to go blind as she uh, got older. And, and finally the time came when she, she could no longer see the, the page. And one day he walked through and she was holding the Bible in her lap. And uh, she said to her son, would you turn to... John 14, which was her favorite uh, passage, and he did. He opened up her Bible to John 14, and she looked at it, and, and she couldn't read it. She began to cry because she couldn't see the words. And so she lifted the book in her hands, and she kissed the page. And she said, that will have to do. Well, I, the question that I have for myself and for you is, do we have that attitude toward the Scriptures? Do we love God's Word? Well, here, here's, here's one who did. This poet did. Now, let me read what he has to say to you and just make a few comments on this, uh, these final eight, uh, eight lines. May my cry come before you, O Lord. Literally, may, may my cry come to your face. Uses a, an interesting uh, idiom that means to, to get up close and personal. He, if I can put it this way, he literally gets in God's face. He, he says, this is something very important to me. I want you to listen to me. I want to understand your word. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. This, uh, the word that's translated sing here is the word that's used in Isaiah 6.1 of the uh, seraphs antiphonally uh, uh, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Uh, it has to do with the response and answer back. And uh, his, his lips overflow with praise and God teaches him his decrees and then his tongue responds antiphonally to that word because he says all your commands are righteous. They're right. I've mentioned before that, that rightness in the Old Testament has the idea of something that, that accords with reality. Isaiah speaks, for example, of a righteous oak. He's talking about a live oak tree because a live oak tree always looks like a tree. Uh, it corresponds to reality. And uh, that's what this word righteousness means. It, it's a a statement of things as, as they really are. It helps us to, to cut through all of the fog and all of the misconceptions and all the puzzles of life and see things as, as they really are. Verse 173, May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, 
and your law is my delight. Let me live that I may praise you, and may your laws sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commandments. Now, there are three things I want to point out to you that, that the psalmist tells us uh, about, the, about the word. The first is that it helps us sort out all of the, the puzzles of life. Life is, is full of complexities and and ambiguities, moral difficulties. We don't always know how to act as, as we should. And he, he cries out. He gets up close and personal. He says, Lord, I, I need understanding. I, I need discernment. Because it's your discernment that will deliver me. He recognized his, uh, uh, that uh, he needs to be delivered from himself. Uh, the New Testament, the, the Old Testament, and New Testament both take the point of view that we're very naive, and uh, we need some word to quell our waywardness. We're inclined to wander away from truth and from reality, and we need a word that will that will give direction to our lives, help us to make our way through the minefield that's out there in the in in, in our world, and uh, help us to avoid the things that will that will destroy our lives. And so he cries out for insight. That would deliver him. Teach me, he says. Your your decrees for all your commands are are righteous. We need help to make our way through life, so that we don't make the kind of mistakes that will trash our lives and trash our families and and make life more difficult for for people uh, around us. Because life is such a such a puzzle. I we we uh, my our son. Uh, Brian and his wife Jill and their two grandchildren have been with us this Thanksgiving and uh, Carolyn found a puzzle for Sarah, their three-year-old. It's a Sesame Street puzzle and and about ten times over the last uh, two days she has brought it in to me and she says, Papa, help me do this puzzle. And it has about eight pieces in it and she punches all the pieces out and they get scattered all over the floor and and I sit down on the floor with her, and I say, all right, Sarah, and I look for a round corner, and that goes up there, and there's a little piece of brown that, that goes over here, and, and, and we, we just work our way through the puzzle, and she puts all the pieces in, and then she holds it up, and she says, look what we did. Well, that's the way life is. It's, it's full of puzzling elements, and we need someone to help us. If we're going to put all the pieces together in, in a proper way, we, we need a lot of help. Uh, some of you, I know, are, are living in loveless marriages. That, that's very hard. It's very difficult. And that, that breaks God's heart as well as your heart. And you're wondering what, what to do and how to handle this. Do I need to get out of this marriage? Or uh, what, what should I do? Where do I turn? Well, that's where Scripture helps us, you see. It tells us, first of all, that, that God is not given to us in order to take all of our problems away and give us everything that we want in this life. That our problems are given to us to draw us nearer to the heart of God. That all of the struggles and the stresses and the, and the hurts and, and the lovelessness of this life is, is, pushes us closer to the love of God so that we can know more of Him and as we read his word, we read the story of, of Leah, for example, Jacob's wife. She, she was an unloved woman. Uh, 
she had weak eyes, the passage tells us. We don't really know what that means, except uh, she wasn't loved. Her husband didn't care about her, cared about uh, his other, other wife, Rachel. And Leah kept hoping that her, that her husband would, would love her. And uh, uh, she, she prayed that something would change. And uh, finally she had a child. The, the other wife, Rachel, was, was childless, and she had a child. And she said, well, surely my husband will, will uh, he'll care for me now. And she, she called her first son Reuben because uh, now, she said, my, my husband will, will see. He will see what, what he's doing to me and how much hurt he's inflicting upon me. But he didn't see. He, he didn't get the message. And she had another son, and uh, she named him Simeon. Uh, it comes from the Hebrew word to hear. And she said, he, now he'll hear my cry of distress and he'll love me. But he didn't. And uh, she, she had another son. And she called him Levi. Now, she said, my son will be attached to me. The, the, the word Levi sounds very much like the Hebrew word for, uh, for attachment. But uh, he, he wasn't attached to her. He never, never cared about her very much. And uh, then she had her fourth son. And she named him Judah because she said, now I'll praise the Lord. She finally realized that Jacob might never love her, but she would find the, 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 what her heart longed for in the Lord himself. You know, you're not going to get that information out there in the world. They're not going to tell you that. They're not going to tell you that the main thing in life is to know God and to love him and to enjoy him. That's what gives us, uh, all of us, peace and satisfaction and very often God permits the hurt and the pain of life so that we'll, we'll just cling to him because that's where we're going to find the, the joy and the fulfillment that our hearts long for. And uh, uh, then today, one of the other issues that's being uh, bandied about is what, what, what is a family? What, what do we mean when we talk about family values? What constitutes uh, uh, a family? Thirty years ago, no, no one was asking that question. And we, we watched uh, the Waltons and Little House on the Prairie, and it was very obvious to us what a family was, but, uh, but nobody seems to know anymore. Is it okay for, for Heather to have two mommies? Is, is Daddy's uh, uh, new roommate good? Is, is that okay? See, we, we just don't know anymore, but we turn to the Word and... And, and, and the Bible tells us that a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his woman, ish, man, isha, woman. And, and uh, uh, that, that's what a family is. You see, we don't need to have any, any question about what it means uh, to be a family. It's all spelled out for us in the scriptures. And, and what, what the psalmist is saying is that he delights in the fact that he can make his way through life and and he can make moral decisions, and he can discern between right and wrong in a world where everything is, is up for grabs. No one seems to know. I've often, I've often said that people in the world today remind me of someone in a little dinghy that, that's in, out on an ocean fathoms deep, and the anchor's hanging down about 20 or 30 feet, and there's just nothing for it to, to, to latch onto, and they're just being tossed hither and yon. And we, don't, we don't need to be shaken. We can know what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's true and what's beautiful, see? That's why I'm so thankful for the Word. In a world where all moral values now are, are being displaced, we have a Word that tells us what's true. I delight in that. 
Now, the second thing that, that the psalmist tells us is that when we set out to do what God calls us to do, he helps us. Look at verse uh, 173. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have, I have uh, chosen your, uh, your precepts. And uh, I long for your salvation, O Lord, for your law is, is, is my delight. Here's a man that delights in the law. It's not onerous. It's, it's not hard. It's not grievous. Because he understands the process by which the law becomes a part of our lives. You know, when, when I was a, a child growing up, I was taught very early. My mother and father were both Christians, both men, that, uh, men and women that loved the word. And, and they, they, they taught me from earliest childhood, from the time I could read, to read the Bible. And uh, it became a habit with me uh, through my high school and early college years when uh, the Lord had little meaning in my life. I still, when I came home at night, didn't make any difference what I'd done or how guilt-ridden I might be. I, I had to read the Bible. It was just a habit with me. It was duty. It was like doing 50 push-ups or, or running two miles uh, every day or whatever it is that uh, you may be doing, the regimen that, that you uh, that you endure to try to stay in shape, and it, it was duty. That's all. It was just duty, and I didn't get anything out of it. I didn't remember it, but I just had to do it. It was it was habit. You see, you may remember uh, in C.S. Lewis's last battle, the, the the dwarves who had no heart for God, they had no love for His Word, and they were given heavenly food to eat. And uh, to them, Lewis says, it looked and smelled and tasted like dung and straw. They, they didn't like it. It wasn't tasty. They, they didn't enjoy it, see. Well, the reason is because they had not chosen the word. Yeah, that's where we have to begin. We have to choose it. We have to say, I'm, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to submit to it. It, there are things here that I don't fully understand. There, there, there are things that I find that I cannot do, but this is what I want, and my will chooses to do what God has called me to do. See, that's the key to a lot of things with reference to the Word. That's how we know it's true. Once we choose to submit ourselves to God's Word, then it begins to make sense to us. That's why Jesus said to the, the, the crowd that had a problem believing that what he was saying was really true, if anyone's will is to do my will, you'll know. You'll know whether these are my words or not. See, it's not an intellectual process. It has to do with the heart. Have I chosen it? Do I want it? Am I willing to submit to it? Carolyn has been reading a book by Richard Foster on prayer. In the chapter on meditative prayer, Foster refers to a student of his who is quite a scholar, a very intelligent young man, gifted in the biblical languages and and he was sent off by Foster on a spiritual retreat, and he submitted himself to a spiritual leader for a period of a week where he was going to be alone and reading the scriptures, and it happened to be a little monk, and he looked down at his feet, and instead of sandals, he had on Adidas. And this young man was really offended by that, because I suppose he thought monks ought to wear sandals or something. You know, what in the world is this man doing wearing running shoes? And uh, the man told him, I want you to go to your room and I want you to read the story of the Annunciation in Luke 1, 
the announcement to Mary of the coming of Christ. And so he sat down and he read it and he worked through his Greek New Testament and he came up with this wonderful exegesis of the passage. And he went back to talk to the, to the monk. And uh, the monk wasn't at all impressed. He said, no, I want you to go back and read it again. I want you to open your heart. And so he went back and he, and he read it and he read it and he read it the next day. And he, and he just didn't get anything out of it that he hadn't already seen. And uh, he came back and he, and he told the monk he hadn't seen anything. And the man said, I want you to go back and I want you to read it. Open your heart. Open your heart to it. You haven't opened your heart. He said, you're, you're, you're taking this thing much too seriously. You're trying to control the text. Let the Bible control you. Let God speak to you. Listen to what God is saying to you. And he went back and he began to read. And he read that, that one line where Mary said, May it be unto me according to your word. And for the first time it clicked that this was God speaking to him, that God was saying to him, let it be unto you according to my word. And he realized that he had been living his whole life essentially for him, for himself. And, and he, he was willing to say, Lord, let it be unto me according to your word, whatever you want. I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, I'll, I'll be whatever you want. And all of a sudden the word became his delight, you see. Because he was willing to, uh, he was willing to submit himself to it, and when we do that, he helps us, he enables us. To hear, here are these lofty commands: "Be holy, because I am holy," and uh, that that command is stated in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. Who in the world can do that? Who can be as holy as God? And and and, and he never bends. Here 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 is the standard. It's the glory of God, the righteousness of God. But you see, underneath it is, is this enablement. That's what grace is. God's resources at Christ's expense, to use that acrostic. God making himself available to us. Uh, someone has said, to, to run and walk the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the good news brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. There's enablement. When we submit to it, we say, I want it. I want it with all my heart, whatever it costs. I'm, I'm willing to do it. And then we have all of God's resources available to us. But then there's a third thing that the psalmist uh, acknowledges. He, he says, I, let me live that I may praise you and may your laws sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. He, he realizes how far, how far short he falls. He's, he's prone to wander. Uh, we sing that hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But do, do we really understand that's talking about us? We're all prone to wander away. And if the Lord didn't come after us and seek us, we would destroy ourselves. We all have an infinite capacity for self-delusion. Left to ourselves, we would certainly destroy ourselves but he comes after us that's the wonderful thing sends other people after us sends his people to come after us when we stray away and he himself hounds us down he will not let us go Uh, there's a a hook in that line not only will he not only uh, leave us or forsake us he'll never leave us alone he continues to hound us with his love come after us and seek us wherever we go no matter how how badly 
we have failed. No matter how many times we have fallen down. We fall down, we get up, we fall down, we get up. And that's the way we make ourselves to heaven. Make our way to heaven. And, and God is the ultimate realist. He knows that we're going to struggle. And uh, he comes after us, no matter what we do. Some of you may uh, know the name Roy Regals. Uh, he's infamous. Uh, the event that made him famous took place 60 years ago. But uh, I've heard that, uh, that uh, to the end of his days, wherever he went and he was introduced, someone would come up to him and say, Oh, I know who you are. You're Wrong Way Regals. You're the guy that ran the wrong way in a Rose Bowl game in 1929. That's exactly what happened. Uh, Georgia Tech was playing uh, UCLA. Regals was a UCLA football player. The Rose Bowl game. Yeah, 100,000 people or so in the Coliseum and in Southern California. Regal scooped up a fumble, ran the wrong way, 62 yards toward his own goal. And a fellow named Lonnie, or Donnie Lom tackled him on the two-yard line, or he would have scored for Georgia Tech. <clears throat> and uh, uh, when UCLA lined up to punt, the punt was blocked, and Georgia Tech recovered the uh, uh, recovered the block kick in the in the end zone. It was a safety, and that was the margin of victory. They, they, Georgia Tech won by two points. This was just before the half. That wrong, wrong way Regals ran the wrong way, and uh, of course he was humiliated. He went into the uh, locker room and he put a put a blanket over his head, and he was in the corner weeping. And uh, the coach, who was a fellow by the name of Nibs Price, didn't say a thing to the team during the halftime. And after it was, all, uh, it was about three minutes before uh, they were to go back on the field, he gathered the team together. And he said, all right, I want the same team that started the first half to start the second half. And Regal said, Coach, I can't go back out on the field. I have humiliated myself. I have humiliated the school. I have humiliated the team. I can't go back on the field. And Nib said to him, Roy, the game is only half over. Get back on the field. And he, I understand he played his heart out. And when I read that story again, I read it first years ago, and it just stuck in my mind. I read it again a couple of weeks ago, and I just realized that, uh, that that's God's heart. Get, get back on the field, he says. It doesn't make any difference how badly you fail. It doesn't make any, any difference how far you may have gotten away from God. It just takes one step to, to, to get back. and It's just a matter of repentance, turning away from, from sin and stepping back into his embrace and letting him love you and forgive you and, and pick up from, from where you left off and get, get on with it because you're forgiven and loved and cared for eternally. So as I look at this psalm, I, I, I give thanks for the word, and I look at it like a sandwich. You know, here are these uh, incredible demands, inflexible demands of God, and, 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 and yet there's enablement. We're, we don't have to clench our fists, and grit our jaw, and try to do it ourselves. There's enablement there. And when we fail, underneath are the everlasting arms. There is that incredible, ongoing, eternal Forgiveness. That's why I love God's Word. On the front of your bulletin is a poem. I love this poem because uh, it does remind me of, of my uh, mother. She used to have a plaque in the, over her desk 
Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And she lived that out by her obedience to the Word. And I, my fondest memories of her, right down into her 80s and, and shortly before she died, is sitting in, her, in our living room with an old battered uh, Bible in her hands, reading the Word of God. And uh, John Leaf uh, Whittier must have had uh, the same kind of mother because he writes, We search the world for truth. We cull the good, the pure, the beautiful from graven stone and written scroll and all the old flower fields of the soul. And weary seekers of the best, we come back laden from the quest to find that all the sages said is in the book our mothers read. Let's pray. And so we come back to that word that stands no matter what may be crumbling around us. Help us to plant our feet solidly on that solid rock, knowing that what you tell us is true. And we are so grateful for enabling grace, your strength that's made available to us on a day-to-day basis realizing that every demand upon us is ultimately a demand upon you. And when we fail, there is forgiveness. And uh, we can look back on uh, the mistakes and errors and sins, uh, uh, actions that that have hurt others deeply, and and know that you're able to, to, uh, while we cannot undo the past, You can set things right, and uh, you can purify those memories, and you can give us the courage to go on and to walk in obedience to you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.